Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are introducing and hopefully making some inroads into the book of Amos. And so you can turn to the book of Genesis. That's not a joke. We are actually starting in Genesis. We are not starting at Genesis 1-1. And then we're not just going to read all the way up to Amos. But we are going to start in the book of Genesis chapter 8. So you turn there. Now, the book of Amos is one of the minor prophets called Minor because it's one of the smaller books. In fact, Amos is only nine chapters. It won't take us a terribly long time to get through it. But it is a really fascinating book because Amos had a really short prophetic career. His prophetic career from everything we see and know lasted a matter of days. He was a, a shepherd, a, an agriculturalist, a farmer, who was down south, about 15 miles south of Jerusalem, when the call of God for him to go prophesy sent him up to Bethel. And of course, you know that this is one of the places where the pagan Baal worship and the golden calf and everything was happening up in the north. And so he went up into Israel in the north to Bethel to proclaim the same thing that the other prophets were saying at the moment, that Israel had to change their ways and God was going to punish them. And he even is going to predict that both Egypt and Assyria are going to be God's battle axe in order to punish Israel for their behavior. And it's a really interesting thing that he's saying and the time in which he's saying it because at the moment, things are relatively peaceful in Israel. And Israel is pretty well-to-do. They're at peace with most of their surrounding enemies. Assyria is still kind of in decline. You know, that's why uh, God sent Jonah up there to Nineveh and deal with them, bring them to repentance so that God wouldn't destroy them, so that God could use Assyria in order to punish Israel. So all these prophecies tie together, and God is in control of the Gentile nations as well as the chosen people, Israel and Judah, and he's using all these nations, lining them up like checkers in order to, to bring about his will. And in this state of relative peace, Israel has not only engaged in an awful lot of heathen worship, idol worship, the golden calves, all of that, but they have also become corrupt from within, particularly the wealthy and the powerful have taken to suppressing and abusing the poor. And that is one of the primary themes of the book of Amos. One of the things that Amos is going to call Israel out for and demonstrate to them why God is angry with them is the way that the rich and the powerful are uh, oppressing God's people. Because remember, from the very beginning, God has always said that Israel were all brothers. And he put a lot of rules into the Mosaic law that had to do with treating each other fairly. And they simply weren't doing that. 
But the other thing that's really interesting about Amos is that his perspective on God is that God is utterly and completely sovereign. I mean the kind of sovereignty that we talk about here, the kind of sovereignty that is fundamental to what we believe in terms of being reformed Calvinistic kind of people. He is going to argue that God is exactly that kind of sovereign. In fact, in Amos chapter 3, he even says things like... um, If calamity occurs, he says in verse 6, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? I mean, he is talking about an absolutely sovereign God as he writes, as he thinks, as he talks about God. So there's a lot of real good theology throughout this book. This is the New American Standard Keyword Study Bible, and the notes that are in it are from Spiros Zodiades. And in his introduction to the book of Amos, he writes this, and I thought it was interesting. He said, this book is one of the most outstanding among the prophets, both because of its timeless message and because it contains some of the finest examples of literary artistry in the entire Old Testament. So a really fascinating book. Then another thing that is really interesting and unique about Amos is that the first chapter of Amos, God uses Amos to proclaim God's anger against Gentile nations. So even though ultimately he's going to prophesy against Israel, the northern tribes, he starts out by proclaiming God's judgment against the surrounding nations that Israel has been interacting with and that have been oppressing not just Israel but each other and God holds them accountable for the way that they have mistreated each other, sold each other into slavery, taken each other captive, have shed blood amongst each other and so the whole first chapter is about God laying out his declarations of guilt against the Gentile nations. So that's why I have you in Genesis, how can God who has not entered into a covenant like he has with Israel, where he has given Israel the rules, the law, where he has entered into the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant. He's done that with Israel, and so he can hold Israel guilty and say, I have given you my rules, my law, my standards, and I expect you as my chosen people, as my separate people, I expect you to act a certain way. And in fact, the phrase, have I not chosen you, from all the other nations of the earth, you're going to see that coming straight from Amos. That is uh, one of Amos' prophecies, that Israel's responsibility is tied up in the fact that God chose them out of all the nations on the earth. And yet the first chapter is all about God judging and holding guilty Gentile nations. Well, on what basis? How can he do that? And this is a question that Oftentimes people discuss and argue as I was reading various commentaries on the book of Amos to try to get a sense of what others thought of it. That question came up a time or two and people wrestled with it. On what basis can God say what he says in the first chapter of Amos? How can he hold these Gentiles guilty considering that he has not revealed himself to them the way that he has revealed himself to Israel in particular? I think the answer is back here with Noah because after God flooded the earth and saved eight people, he actually did form a covenant with all humanity. And there is only one 
rule, one standard in that covenant that he imposes on all humanity. And it's don't shed blood. And then all people, all humans, all descendants of the eight people who were on the ark are all responsible for that rule. And I think it's on that basis that God can judge the Gentiles, even though he has not entered into a law covenant like he did with Israel. He can still say, you are living on my planet. So we are in Genesis 8. Let's start at verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after the flood has subsided, after they've come off of the ark and are starting over. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. By the way, since we just read this, you know, do you not, that Noah did not take two of every animal onto the ark. When you go to Sunday school lessons, they tell you two of every animal. But there were a few animals that God said take seven of. Clean animals that were appropriate for sacrifice, God said take seven of those. And so God was already preparing so that when Noah landed safely and was back on the planet, that he could sacrifice to God right away without killing off the lineage of any particular animal. If there were only two oxen and he killed one, well, then no more oxen. And so of the clean and the sacrificable animals, is that a word, sacrificable? It's a word now. So he took the the clean, sacrificable animals, seven of them, and sure enough, right away, He took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the field and on every bird in the sky and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are all given every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you and I give it all to you as I give you the green plant only you shall not eat flesh that has its life that is its blood and surely I will require your life blood For every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply it, And then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him and said, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants, that's all mankind, after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the field with you. 
and of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast on the earth. And I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all your successive generations, I have set my bow, the rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and you, and it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the Noahic covenant is established between God and all flesh on the earth. His end of the covenant is, I won't destroy all flesh with a flood ever again. Their end of it is, don't shed blood. Don't eat any animal with the blood in it, because the blood is the life of the animal. And if man sheds blood, then by man his blood will be shed. So all mankind, all humankind, Jews, Gentiles, everybody, the descendants of those eight people on the ark are responsible to this covenant that God imposed all the way back there with Noah. Once he saved eight people of all mankind from his destruction, the one correction, the one instruction, the one rule, the one law, if I can say that, that he imposed on all of them was don't shed each other's blood. And so I think that gives God a perfectly good basis to come to these nations later and say, you're guilty of bloodshed. And so I'm going to judge you. I think that's the basis. And uh, I'm kind of surprised at the amount of commentators who struggle with why God can do this. I don't think it's that peculiar. Does that make sense? Okay. You may now turn to the book of Amos, immediately after the book of Joel, which is after the book of Hosea. So if you still have a marker in Hosea, you're really close. We are going to start at the first chapter, and in the first couple of verses, he's going to tell us when this happened, and he's going to tell us where this happened. He's going to give us all the pertinent details. Now, you may recall that we began studying the minor prophets because we were in chapter 17 of 2 Kings, and that was the time when Jonah was introduced in 2 Kings, and it was the time of the minor prophets, and it was the time of Jeroboam II. And so right at the beginning of the book of Amos, we read, these are the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. Okay, so that tells you where he was, that tells you where he's from, that tells you what he was doing, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Okay, well, that means that we're talking about 750 BC, right around that period of time, 750 years before the time of Christ. He gave us very definite markers during the times of Uzziah and the time of Jeroboam II. And then he says two years before the earthquake. 
Not a single commentator that I read could identify which earthquake that was, but the fact that he told us who was king in Judah and who was king in Israel, we're able to narrow it down pretty well to the time frame, and of course, by comparing it to the other prophets that were prophesying at the same time, that's not only Jonah going off to Nineveh, that's not only Hosea, who we just read, but his other contemporaries are Isaiah, and so that helps when we know the things that Isaiah predicted, and of course, Micah is the other contemporary prophet with him. And so I'm thinking, once we get through the minor prophets, and we go back and we finish 2 Kings, I would really like, before I either die or can't talk anymore, I would really like to teach the book of Isaiah. So I think once we finish 2 Kings, that's probably where we'll head. But we have lots of other work to do before we get there. A couple of short books, and then finish 2 Kings, and then... I think we bite off Isaiah. There's a terrible phrase. I think we, um, <laughs> I think we go study Isaiah, and uh, that will take us until Jesus comes back or I give out. I don't know which, but that'll take us a while to get through Isaiah. So the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders in Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. Now, later in chapter 3, he's going to use that roaring language again, and he's going to liken God to a lion. And this is a fairly typical characterization of God in his anger because you're talking about an area of the world where if you heard the roar of a lion it would pretty much freeze you in your steps because it rumbles all the way around has anybody ever been like to the zoo and heard a lion really roar it's it's an astounding thing that an animal can make that much sound and it, it envelops you. It goes all the way around you. You just get this feeling of, oh, ferocity, the fierceness of the roar. And so if you were anywhere in the Middle East and you're traveling and you're outside of city walls and you hear the roar of a lion, you will stop in your steps and, oh yeah, you're dead. And so right away, he starts out by saying, God's angry and he's angry like a roaring lion. So instead of saying God speaks, he says God roars. And where does he roar? From Zion. And from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn. And the summit of Carmel dries up. In other words, when God is this angry and he roars from heaven and he roars from Zion, the land knows enough to respond. People, not so much. But even the shepherd's pasture grounds will mourn when they hear God roaring. Verse 3, thus says the Lord. Now, he's going to play a little uh, numerical trick here. It's, it's a uh, literary device that he's going to use throughout this chapter. And you see it several times in the Old Testament, so it appears to be a fairly common Hebraism, a way of delineating guilt. And so he says, for three sins, and even for four. And commentators have said some interesting things about this. I'll give you the most interesting and I think the most valid of them. 
obviously the way he's going to use it here. He says, for three things, you're guilty. And then he says, even for four, and then he names the big one. So it's like the fourth one is the big one. So it's almost like you were already guilty. The first three made you guilty. But the fourth one, that's where God's patience ended. And then he tells them what that fourth one was. This is where you're really guilty. What's interesting, though, is that the three and the four, of course, add up to seven. And sevens in the Bible are very important. And they designate completeness. It's the number of completeness throughout the Bible. So that when we get to the second chapter next week, he's going to say the same thing to Israel, but then he's not just going to delineate the the fourth one, the most important one. He actually does list seven reasons that Israel's guilty. So there is this seven thing playing in this as well. So you're guilty for three, even four, and with the Gentile nations, he just names the fourth. But then when he turns to Israel, it's you're guilty for three and even four, and he names all seven to really show them how guilty they are. The Lord says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron, So I will send upon the house of Hazael, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus, cut off the inhabitant from the land of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. So the people of Aram will go exiled. Those are the Arameans. They will go exiled to Ker, says the Lord. Anybody have any idea what that's about? No, I don't. No. So I will be reading from notes that I've taken from the commentators, and I openly admit it. Now, when it comes to commentaries, usually I don't like commentaries that give a lot of opinion, a lot of um, additional what I think this means is. Those aren't the kind of commentaries I like. I like encyclopedias. I like fact-based stuff. I like somebody who will just tell me, okay, I've done the research. This is what this is about. And so most of the notes that I'm going to be reading from tonight for you come from a commentary called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And it is primarily just facts and figures. And that's really helpful. Because as Amos is saying this to the inhabitants of Israel, he is referencing things that have happened in their own recent history. So they know it. They know all this stuff as he's saying it. It would be like if I stood up here and made reference to 9-11 and then something about Hitler in Germany during World War II and then mentioned the Vietnam War. This is part of our common history and therefore we're familiar with it. So I don't have to go into a whole lot of explanation. If I just say, uh, Hitler's guilty. I don't have to tell you a lot about why, because our common history is we know why. Well, that's what he's doing here. He is mentioning things that 2,750 years ago were common knowledge to the people he was writing to. Not so common to us, so we have to go back and dig and find a historian who can tell us what these things were about, and that's what I have found. Here's what it says. In the judgment 
on each of the first seven nations, God is pictured as the Lord who has brought his armies to punish his vassal cities for their revolt. You'll notice that in each case, there is a fire that will consume the walls or the fortresses, that's the word citadel, of the city and will leave it a smoldering ruin. In punishing Damascus, God declared that he would smash the bar of the city gate, which would break down the gate, which would strip the city of its defenses. And he would destroy the rebel king who reigned over the wicked and the proud nations. The phrase Valley of Avon and Beth Eden may refer to particular regions in Aram, but more likely they're actually just derogatory references to the area and the palaces of Damascus because Beth Eden actually means the house of pleasure and Valley of Avon means the valley of wickedness. And so God may be simply calling them by a nickname and saying, you're wicked and you're addicted to your pleasures. The house or the dynasty of Hazael would be terminated. The Arameans will be exiled back to their very place of origin which is a Mesopotamian site called Kerr. So in essence, this punishment would be a complete reversal of Aram's proud history. God, who originally brought them out of Kerr, will then send them back to Kerr after obliterating everything they had achieved. And by the way, that judgment actually was carried out by the Assyrians under Tiglath-Pileser III, in 732 BC. So if this is right around 750 that he's saying this, this actually happened within 12 years, which means that Amos is an accurate prophet. Continuing in verse 6, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels, her fortresses, and I will also cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. Well, all right, let's see what the Bible Conference Commentary says about it. In verses 6 to 8, four of the five cities that comprised the Philistine Pentapolis are mentioned. Pentapolis just means five cities that are part of Gaza as a, as a unit, as a nation. And four of them are named here, Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. The omission of the fifth one, Gath, may be due to its ruined condition at the time of Amos, because of the batterings of Hazael in 815 BC and Uzziah attacking it in 760 BC. So that's a pretty knackered city at this point anyway, so God doesn't really have to tear them down much more. Knackered was the description I went with. The Philistines' crime against humanity was that they captured whole communities in slave raids and sold them for commercial profit. And defenseless people were treated as mere objects and were auctioned off in the slave markets of Edom, from which they then were shipped out to other parts of the world. America did not invent slavery. 
It's been going on for a long time. Now, by the way, you're going to notice as we go through chapter 1 that he's going to mention Ammon and Moab and Edom, which are the three countries just off to the east of Israel itself. And these are also the three places that Daniel says that the Israelites should run when the time of trouble actually happens. So these are close by areas. And because they're close by, Israel has already made a series of covenants with them, a series of agreements with them. But particularly, the Edomites who live there in Edom are the descendants of Esau. These are the Esauites. And so not only are they physically neighbors, but their heritage is that they're brothers. And so God is going to hold them guilty for not just breaking covenants and agreements with each other, and not just for taking slaves from other nations and then having a, a, an active slave market, but also for the fact that they don't get along with Israel and Israel doesn't get along with them and their heritage is a heritage of brothers. So the more you know about this Old Testament history, the more you can understand these judgments. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, And for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. That's what I'm talking about, that their ancient history had to do with brotherhood, common heritage, common history, and they didn't remember that covenant and ended up attacking Israel and then selling them into slavery. And they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. This is the problem with Tyre. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it will consume her citadels or her fortresses. Now, we've talked here before about Tyre and Sidon. We have looked at other prophecies against Tyre and Sidon. And the history of Tyre and Sidon has to do with Alexander the Great. Does that all sound familiar now? Tyre was a city set on a rock island just off the coast, and their sister city, which was uh, Sidon, was actually on the coast, and Sidon grew all the grain and created all the produce that fed the people that were in the walled city, and so whenever there was any kind of attack or anything, the people of Sidon would go out to the island, they'd all get inside the rock wall city, and they felt that they were safe there, and they were, they were impregnable there, and yet the prophets predicted that God was going to destroy Tyre, which seemed just absolutely impossible. And then Alexander the Great comes along, and he raised Sidon to the ground and used the rocks and started throwing them into the sea. And over the course of months and months and months, they successfully built a causeway across the water all the way out to the island. And then the armies of Alexander the Great marched across the causeway And to this very day, the prophecy that Tyre was going to be a place where fishermen end up drying their nets, that's how it is to this very day. You can go out there and take the tour. You can go see Tyre. And the great big walled city, gone. And so here is God saying that he is going to take Tyre down. He's going to destroy and consume the fortress that is there in Tyre. The Bible knowledge commentary has this to say about it. The sin of Tyre 
Phoenicia's leading city, was even more callous than Gaza's, not only did she sell the whole community of captives to Eden, but she did so in violation of a treaty of brotherhood, a protective covenant between two partners. If Israel was the injured partner, the reference is probably to the pact between Solomon and Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, or perhaps to a later relations that were established through the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel. In any case, there was a covenant of brotherhood between Tyre, a neighboring city just north of Israel and right on that western border on the sea. And the destruction, when it was predicted by the prophets, seemed so impossible that the prophets were chided for saying that a great city like Tyre could be destroyed. And yet it happened exactly as God said. Tyre's punishment is similar to that described in verse 7. Alexander the Great overran the city of Tyre in 332 BC after besieging it for seven months. 6,000 people were slain outright, 2,000 were crucified, and 30,000 were sold as slaves. And Tyre had sold Israelites to Edom as captives, and later many Tyrians became the captives. So God turned the whole thing upside down. And that takes us to verse 11. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Edom, the Edomites, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword, while he stifled his compassion and his anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever or continually, depending on your translation. So I will send fire upon Teman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. Well, here's what the commentary says. The sin of Edom was his persistent and unfeeling hostility against his brother. Brother could refer to some unknown treaty partner, but the frequent references in the Old Testament to Edom's brotherhood with Israel suggests that this refers to the physical kinship between the two nations that began all the way back at Esau and Jacob, as I said earlier. At some point in Israel's history, Edom relentlessly pursued his defeated brother with a sword. You can read about some of that in Obadiah 10. And without any natural feeling of compassion, Edom let his fury rage continually like a beast tearing its captured prey. He brooded over his fury, nourishing it so that it flamed unchecked. Just a fancy language by the commentators there. Just confirming that indeed history shows that what Amos predicted actually came true in history. Verse 13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. But they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and it will consume her citadels amid war cries in the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. Their king will go into exile, he and his princes together. Okay, so last bit from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the judgment against Ammon. The terrible cruelty of Ammon is that he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. 
This atrocity, sometimes a feature of ancient warfare, in fact, there are references to it in 2 Kings 8.12 and 2 Kings 15.16. This kind of warfare was designed to terrorize and decimate an enemy. The Ammonites executed this crime against defenseless women and unborn children, not for self-preservation, but simply in order to extend their borders. Because of this heartlessness, God would set fire to the walls of Rabah, Ammon's capital city, and amid the engulfing flames, the inhabitants would hear war cries of the attackers as they fell on their victims. Violent winds, symbolizing God's own awesome power, would lash at the city, and the enemy would take both king and officials into exile. And this judgment was fulfilled through the Assyrian conquest under Tiglath-Pileser III in 734 B.C. So, here's all you need to know about the first chapter of the book of Amos. It is all about God doling out righteous judgment against the Gentile nations that all were on the borders of Israel. Every one of these nations is a border nation around the edges of Israel. And Israel, being God's chosen elect people and having right and claim to that land, have had years and years, hundreds of years of warfare with these surrounding nations as they have battled over the borders and who would control that land. And so God holds these people responsible for the way that they have treated Israel, but also how they have treated each other. Because an absolutely sovereign God can say to all humanity and to all mankind, I have certain expectations like the fact that I have made all mankind in my image. And because mankind is made in my image, I can require of you that you not kill each other because you simply don't have that right. You don't have that authority or jurisdiction to kill something I personally created in my own image. Murder, bloodshed has always been wrong, will always be wrong. God will hold even Gentile nations guilty for the things that they have done and the way they have shed blood. So now if we were to extend that out into the broadest theological and eschatological framework of the Bible... We know that there's a time of trouble coming on the earth such as never was, ever would be again. And we know that it's a time of Jacob's trouble. And we know that it's concentrated on Israel and their responsibility before God and the way that they have broken his law. But then part and parcel of that time of trouble is that it is going to envelop, engulf all the nations of the earth. And God is going to hold everybody guilty. Ultimately, in the judgment of all mankind, God is going to deal with every individual on the planet who has ever lived and is going to find him guilty. And as I said at the beginning an hour ago, theologians struggle with that idea and say, how can God hold everybody guilty if he hasn't revealed himself to them? And I think it goes back to the very beginning when God brought Noah and the seven others off the ark and said, you're only alive on my planet by my grace and my goodness. I'll make a covenant with you. I'm not going to flood you anymore. Of course, Peter tells us next time he's going to use fire to destroy everything. won't be a flood, but it will be fire. <laughs> and, and God laid only one requirement on all human beings, which was don't shed each other's blood. 
And then on all life, if you shed an animal's blood, if you kill an animal, don't eat its blood because the life of a creature is in the blood. So can God judge all mankind rightly and justly? The big theological answer is yeah, yes he can. Not only can he, but he can do it righteously and justifiably because from the very beginning of the restoration of people on planet Earth, he laid out one requirement and all mankind is guilty before him. And then among Israel in particular, when we get into chapter 2 next week, he's going to start with, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom and burned them down to lime. So I will send fire upon Moab and it will consume the citadels of Kirioth and Moab will die amid the tumult and war cries and the sound of a trumpet. And I will also cut off the judge from her midst and slay all her princes with him, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah. And he turns his attention to Judah and for four I will not revoke its punishment. And the whole rest of the book of Amos is God holding Judah and Israel guilty. Chapter 3, he goes so far as to say all the families of Israel, all the tribes are guilty. And yet by the time he gets to chapter 9, we're going to see the same thing that we see from all the prophets of Israel. God also promises them ultimate restoration. So that's where we're headed. That's the book of Amos. That's your introduction. So we will pick up in chapter 2 next week. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.